right. trying to see. Good morning, everybody. How are we all doing? Great. How are you? I'm good. I'm ready for our podcast for uh, 53.17. Um, well, do you want to start with the introductions? We can all introduce ourselves. I can go ahead and start. Uh, mm -hmm. My name is Desiree Carney. Um, in this uh, podcast session, I'm going to be talking about uh, the benefits of professional learning environments and incorporating blended learning. And um, I could pass it on to um, Deanna, if you would like to go. My name is Deanna Burley. I am a secondary English teacher. And in this podcast, I'll be talking about incorporating blended learning environments in the secondary ELA classroom, uh, focusing on like a flipped model as well as rotational. And I'll go next. Uh, my name is Cassandra Garza. I work at a disciplinary alternative education program and I am implementing blended learning, um, more so focused on the station rotation model at my campus. So I'll be discussing that. Hi, I'm Gauri Misra and I will be implementing um, blended learning in um, doing a project-based learning. Um, I'm a seventh grade science teacher so that's why I want to implement this for my program. Isma? Hey guys, uh, I'm Isma Selvin, and uh, I would be implementing uh, blended learning again with station rotation model. And I wish one of the stations uh, would be with a Montessori method of education for pre-K and kinder. Awesome. Well, Misma, since you just went, I'm going to go ahead and ask you the question. Um, what is the purpose of blended learning and the Montessori method of education in pre-K and kinder? So uh, we know all the children learn in many ways. So some through listening, some through reading, seeing, and doing. And uh, at a very early age, they need to be in an environment that makes them happy, feel secure, and confident to build their own mastership for their activities. So this was one of the main reasons for me to create my innovation plan. And my primary goal was to develop the motor skills among uh, pre-K and kinder students. So when I went, when uh, I entered a kinder classroom, most of the kids uh, I saw they were lacking with uh, their motor skills as uh, the reason that, that, that was the main reason for me to uh, focus on this area. It helps them mainly to uh, build their strong foundation and also in their uh, social as well as emotional cognitive and physical needs. So uh, I agree with uh, implementing Montessori materials into uh, uh, elementary education because we have a lot of private Montessori schools around. So uh, when I was trained as a Montessori teacher, I uh, al always uh, appreciated it to be in an elementary school. So that's the reason I created, I mean, I wanted to implement it, uh, this blended learning uh, with station rotation model in pre-K and kinder. Awesome, I love that. And can you explain how you have fixed the stations in pre-K classroom and uh, what were the challenges that you have faced so far? I would always say uh, there would be four stations. So the first station is going to be the teacher's station. So in that station, uh, it's going to be a small group and it's going to be one-on-one -on -one interaction. 
with uh, me. And the second station, it's going to be the technology station. So where they can work with uh, some interesting technology apps that's provided from my organization. And the third station is going to be the independent activity station. So this is where I really wanted them to uh, be introduced to some Montessori didactic materials. So where they, it, it creates them the uh, purpose of COVA over here. So where they can be independent in choosing what activities they really wanted to work on instead of them, instead of forcing activities onto them. Or uh, so they get a free choice on what they really want to do or what they really want to, I mean, like to do. And the fourth station is going to be the group activity station where they can work together with peers with some boundaries onto it for sure. Awesome. And, and you know, you mentioned the stations and you mentioned the materials. So uh, quick, another question is how can the Montessori didactic materials help students to develop their reading and writing skills? So we have different uh, Montessori materials, especially for that. So if in case, if you take it for a writing, you have uh, what to say, uh, we can start to find out their, what, what they are lacking on, whether it's in a fine motor skills or their gross motor skills. And if it's like their fine motor skills or gross motor skills, we can uh, work on with uh, some using scissors, how to use scissors and how to use the uh, pinpricking boards and uh, spooning works, glazing works. There are a lot of interesting works for them. So, and in the same way, if you go on for reading, so because these are uh, very younger age children, so I always prefer to have some pictures or objects for them to be, uh, what to say, be more attractive to whatever they are doing. So that really reflects on whatever they do. So it's easy, even if it's like one-on-one, it's easy for us to know in what phase they are. uh, And we can also assess them according to their learning phase on it. I love that. Well said and well thought out and planned. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I would like to, uh, I would like to ask uh, Tiona. So with some interesting stuff, because I really wanted to know how it works in um, high school. So how uh, successful has station rotation been at high school level, Tiona? I would say it's been semi-successful I've definitely had some pushback from students and colleagues um but for the most part I have seen progress in like student learning as far as like how they're showing how they're learning the content um especially with vocabulary um the station rotations has helped a lot I do it kind of this kind of similar to the way that you do it so um except sometimes I'll do individual, like one-on-one. Sometimes I'll do like groups, small groups with Mm -hmm. my students as far as like the instructor part. Mm -hmm. And then they'll have group work. Of course, they'll have like a technology piece because we always have to incorporate technology in the classroom. True. And and then they have a station where they work individually. So that way I know that they are learning something as far as the station goes and the content for their day. Okay, so that was perfect. So what challenges do you guys face when uh, implementing blended learning in a secondary ELA classroom? Oh, that's my dog, sorry. I would say the same challenges uh, that we face coming into the program. Um, A lot of my students were just like, well, what do we do? Like, they don't really understand as long as you're not 
uh, if you're not directly telling them what it is that you want them to say or write down on the paper, because they're so used to like test, 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 test. Um, so it's hard getting their, taking their control and taking their creativity and being able to utilize it for the sake of like learning, right? Because they're so used to always doing it for the sake of fun and entertainment. Um, and it's hard like making them flip that switch, especially now with social media. So I would definitely say uh, that that's one of the challenges, um, but I use it to my ability uh, and I use it to my strengths when I'm talking about social media because a lot of them, they're just so focused on their phones. So I started, um, making them watch like little TikToks for mm -hmm. and stuff and they come in and they write and that's how I kind of utilize my flipped classroom design with the students um, as far as like social media. That's awesome. So uh, do you think a blended learning environment can be applied anywhere outside of a traditional classroom such like uh, work trainings, professional development, et cetera? What is your idea about it? I definitely do think that it can be applied outside of the public school classroom, of course. Um, you say you use it in your Montessori, right? Mm -hmm. And Desiree, of course, she uses it for her professional development. And all of us have created a professional development plan as far as like blended learning goes. And we see that um, with that movement, it really helps with that learning key. So Desiree will talk about that later. Um, now I want to ask Cassandra some questions. Let's see. So Cassandra, you're also doing um, secondary, right? But you're yes. in a behavioral campus. So what pushed you to innovate the blended learning at your disciplinary campus? Um, so my main goal um, behind it was just to kind of provide our students at um, the DAP campus with opportunities to empower their learning. Um, especially through the station rotation model, because when students arrive to our campus, they, um, you know, they're either so far behind in their work or they just show no need or want for engagement in their assignments, whether it be like a daily assignment, a daily quiz, um, really, I mean, any kind of assignment, they don't want to do it. And um, with having no engagement with other students, I feel like it's really hard on them. I know that we're a disciplinary campus, but I feel like that shouldn't stop us from letting students engage in their work, especially if it's only for maybe 30 minutes out of the day. I like that. I like that, Cassandra, a lot. Um, I deal with a few behavioral students, so I can really see how the um, the this learning environment, like changing the learning environment can change how they um, see learning, really. So, Thank you for that answer. How has the station rotation model at your campus helped students at your campus? Um, I feel like it's helped them for the most part with the small um, stations that I've somewhat done. It's really hard to um, put people in stations at my campus, especially because sometimes they're sent to my campus because they did something that they got in trouble with together or um, you know, they're not very fond of another student. So I kind of have to go through the paperwork to see who works better with who. Um, and it really, it really helps them. You know, I focus in social studies, but sometimes I help um, our science teacher when they're conducting experiments and things like thing at their, at their home campus. But we have to kind of 
adjust it to what we can do at our campus because we don't have everything that the home campus has. And it's just amazing seeing them light up um, really when they get to work together. Because like I said, they're confined to a desk that, you know, that faces the wall. And so it's, it's very sad, but it's helped a lot. And I like seeing them really light up. That's cool. I definitely agree with that piece as well. Like I said, I have a few behavioral students and anytime I try to put them in groups, they're like, uh -uh, nope, I don't want to work with her. And it's a bunch of drama. So what challenges have you come across with implementing blended learning? Um, so one thing that I really, one of the main whirlwinds that I experienced um, has to really be with my colleagues. A lot of them are, you know, they're older than me and they kind of have a fixed mindset of what our school should be like. Um, they're not open to really changing it or anything like that. And I remember whenever I first started my implementation process, I kind of went around and semi-interviewed um, other teachers because basically our schools kind of split into three. We have an elementary portion, we have a junior high portion, and then we have a high school portion. And so, um, you know, I kind of went around asking them, like, you know, what's your take on blended learning? You know, uh, how do you feel about it? And everything I got back was, oh, that's something we can't do here. Or we're a disciplinary campus. You know, they shouldn't be able to engage with one another. And, you know, it's, it was kind of sad, you know, hearing that from people that I looked up to, you know, because they they know how to work, you know, and it just, it was really sad. So I think that's one of the main parts that really, um, that was very challenging for me. Thank you, Cassandra. Um, and then my last question for you is, have you experienced any whirlwind at your DAEP campus? Um, really, like I, I think I, I kind of just said that I kind of summed it up in my other in my other answer, but really it's just um, overcoming what my colleagues think and overcoming, um, you know, students who don't want to work together. Like you said, you you even experience this at in a normal campus in a normal classroom and sometimes students don't want to work with each other and it's kind of hard, especially at my campus, you know, I can't do anything else, you know, and I don't want to upset them, especially because of where they are. And then the last thing I need is for someone to get suspended or, you know, anything like that. So um, I think that's really, that sums up my whirlwind that I've experienced. <laughs> but after summing up um, my portion, Gory, I have a few questions for you. I know that you um, we're implementing uh, PBLs or wanting to implement PBLs in your science classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to start with uh, my first question for you. How do you think implementing PBLs um, has helped learners to enhance their learning of topics in science? So I think it, it greatly helps, um, as we all know, uh, since we've been here in this environment, I mean, education for such a long time, um, it's all about the test. I cannot tell you every time that they ask me, is this up for a grade? I cringe. I like really, really cringe. 
Um, but I think with PBLs, and the research suggests that as well, that the retention and basic interest in a particular topic just increases a lot more. Um, and yes, of course, you know, you'll still be sort of grading them, but it's it creates a significant learning environment for them because they have a choice. They can, um, I usually try and give them, it'll be one topic, but I try and give them different options and how they can present it. It could be, you know, a video presentation using a Flipgrid or a terrarium or a diorama or whatever it is. So in that respect, they have a choice. Um, it also enhances uh, research skills because when I give them the topic, I just have them um, research it a little bit. I don't have them necessarily cited how we cited at our level, but I'm slowly encouraging them to kind of go to the right sites and learn how to do research. Um, because, you know, middle school, I think is a great way to put that foundation down. Um, I also think it, it really does help with the collaboration every time um, not just for PBL, but for anything else as well. If I ask them um, to work in groups, it's a much better environment, except of course, like um, Diana and, and Cassandra, you both said it sometimes becomes challenging because not everybody wants to work with everyone. But then again, it's real life. You don't have to have the person, uh, you know, you don't have to like the person you work with, but you have to respect and still work with them in a cordial way. So I think slowly but surely it enhances that as well. And so um, I just feel like it creates a much better environment than just studying to the test, which is extremely frustrating because we're still teaching to the test and they're still studying to the test. But I'm hoping that that one of these days we'll, you know, move away from it or at least uh, shift a little bit from that by using more PBLs and you giving them more choices and voices uh, with authentic learning opportunities because I think that's the other thing that it provides is for them to actually really learn because we've learned that we um, need to be in their context now. They can get it's crazy how many times they'll give me information that I don't even know is there for anything for that matter. So we need to create that kind of an environment for them. And I think giving them PBLs gives them that little bit of an independence to go in and dig deeper, really. So I think it enhances using PBLs and enhances it in, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, that's pretty awesome that you're thinking about doing that for your students. I um, actually have a friend who focuses on PBLs in her class, in mm -hmm. one of her classes, although she doesn't teach the test because she teaches um, an elective class, but her, the outcomes are amazing. And she's also been nominated twice for teacher of the year. Yeah. So her class really loves it. Um, I'll go on to my next question. How has blended learning um, helped integrate PBL in your classroom? Yeah. So, um, some of it, like I said, has been because they do the research. So that right there, and then the correct ways to do it, like you can't just Wikipedia or, you know, go to any site on Google, you know, you have to kind of um, go to the more authentic sites and just the whole process of uh, guiding them to go there, um, as well as like for them to have options to either, either use things like Flipgrid or even Google Classroom, um, Canva, and all of these different um, things that they can. I also encourage them actually in my classroom, I have what we call a fun fact Friday. So 
kids will come up with some fun facts and then I will bring some fun facts. And I often go to my Instagram, read my feed and share my fun facts from there. Um, so they are also encouraged to go. I just shared a <clears throat> fun fact with them this past Friday. And one of the kids asked me, you know, where did you get that from? So I told them, you know, and they're like, oh, I'm going to go home and look at it. I can't even tell you how happy that made me feel because it's in their context. Um, it's blended learning. You wouldn't think of it that you would use Instagram or TikTok for it, but you are. Um, and I think that is coming to their context and meeting them halfway um, while still trying to work with the whirlwind of teaching to the test and all of that. And I wish I could do it like your friend. I think it would make so much of a difference, but you know, we work with what we've got. Yes. And it's good that you're trying it. That's what matters. Yeah. Um, what are the, what are some of the challenges that you have faced in the implementation process of PBLs? So I think the biggest challenge is like you had mentioned in your little, um, conversation earlier is just trying to, um, um, convince people to do it. So when I moved into this classroom, that's what I wanted to do. Um, my kids, I mean, my students are still like, we don't have as many labs. I wish we had labs because they also help them with that. We just don't have that many. Uh, but it's it's just trying to implement it and trying to convince people to do it. Now, unlike you, I'm the older one in my uh, little science unit. Um, so you would hope that, you know, the others would be more um, sort of perceptive and accepting to this. And we tried to implement it, but by the time we hashed it out and and um, sort of, you know, redid it, uh, revamped it. It's barely a PBL. Mm -hmm. They're working in, you know, they're working individually. So it's kind of challenging, but I'm hoping again, chipping away a little bit at a time. Also, a lot of times, uh, like um, uh, Desiree had mentioned in the beginning, it's always like, you know, is this like, and I said too, is this for a grade? I mean, is this a test? Is this this? It's like, I don't know how many times in a day I tell them not everything is for a test, but it's going to take a long time for them to understand that there is more to life than just learning to the test and just the grades. Um, so I think those two would be my biggest challenges is um, having people accept PBLs for what they are and what they're worth and trying to um, sort of almost quote unquote educate the children that not everything is about a grade. Well, thank you. I think that's true. You know, um, a lot of students need to be reminded not, that not everything is for a grade mm -hmm. and it's not, you know, focus on the test. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'm going to go ahead and ask Desiree some questions. Why is it necessary to change our professional learning environments as we work to implement our innovation plans? Yeah. Thank you, Gloria. And thank you, everybody. Um, I will say, I didn't um, mention this in the beginning of the session, but what I do, I work at the district level for my school district. And so I do a lot of professional, um, prepare a lot of content for, for professional learning. And I think it's important as we work to incorporate change, we as ed educators need to consider the fact that this for many is a new way of thinking, you know, as we look at instructional environments. You know, if we think about best practices, it's best for educators, teachers to first experience the environment in a professional learning setting themselves prior to being expected to implement this in a classroom environment. 
Yeah, I think I totally agree. I mean, I can totally relate to that. I often think about that myself, but that's awesome. Uh, what are some examples of how educators can restructure professional learning environments to help promote change? Yes, yeah. Let me first begin with how professional development should be used, you know, to address teacher, you know, as an intellectual and as a technician. You know, with that said, the majority of professional development provides teachers, like we've heard, that sit and get model um, of learning, and the content is often, you know, not relevant for for everybody. You know, with a blended learning uh, professional experience, that is a combination of online, face to face activities. You know, uh, teachers can. Um, Help, it can help enhance the content knowledge and knowledge of instruction um, with the end goal of improving the student learning. You know, um, also like adding uh, active learning components, for example, into a professional learning environment, you know, um, will help, you know, provide those opportunities uh, to process the course material through thinking, writing, talking, problem solving, and, uh, you know, give teachers as well as students the, the multiple avenues for learning. Yeah, I think that's great. I think your point on ongoing is like the key. It really does help. I see that for myself. If I have someone I can just kind of go back to and ask, I think that's awesome. Um, how will changing our professional learning environments benefit our students? You know, that that's a really good question. You know, um, the one reason um, why rethinking professional learning, it's important, you know, of course, it's for students, you know, of course, providing professional learning settings uh, by making the experience more relevant for educators is an important factor. But if we want to implement innovations with fidelity, you know, it is important that we become experts so that our students will get the most out of the experience. You know, we want to work to avoid any fidelity gaps so that our students, you know, will have the benefit, you know, of the learning environment and everything that we've talked about today, you know, from elementary to secondary to DAEP, you know, we want to make sure that they do get the most of what it is we're trying to implement. And a lot of planning and development has gone into this. So uh, we, we do want to make sure that it is, it is done properly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You're absolutely correct. So I think um, that about concludes our Yes, and, sessions. And it's been awesome. And I'm looking forward to the next part because we're going to be interviewing the one and only Dr. H. So yes. it's going to be really exciting. <laughs> so thank you guys. It's, it's been awesome. I mean, anybody have any final thoughts before we come to an end? So we are going to be ending this session. I was just going to say, I think it's amazing that our little group has such a blended, if I may say so, yet varied um, uh, viewpoints. And I think it makes up for a really wonderful chat because we are going from elementary all the way to high school in DAEP too. So I think yes. it gives us a lot of uh, multifaceted perspective. Yes, thank you all so much for this journey. It's been... <laughs> so for this portion of our podcast, we'll be interviewing Dr. Hirok Newick our professor in the ADL graduate program on his experiences implementing blended learning into the classroom setting. Dr. H, would you mind giving a brief intro about you before we start? Sure. Um, I am the, whoops, 
<laughs> I moved my mouse. I'm the uh, developer and lead instructor in the Applied Digital Learning Program at Lamar University. Um, I am a learning theorist who has been exploring how we can use technology to enhance the learning environment and have been doing that for many decades. And uh, the ADL program is probably the closest iteration I have to achieving that lifelong goal of mine. And it's a wonderful program where people like yourselves explore how you can take innovations, whether it's blended learning, makerspaces, e-portfolios, e-sports, robotics, whatever, and enhance learning and change the world for your learners. So that's what I do. And I love chatting with my with fellow learners. And so this is what we're doing today. Is that is that good? Perfect. Um, so, Dr. H, um, I wanted to ask you, as you have gone through your career and implemented and seen the implementation of blended learning, what do you think has been successful for you or for others that have been in the program? I, uh, you did send me the questions ahead of time, and I've been thinking about that for a while. I, I actually, I'm going to be doing a podcast with Dr. Thibodeau on this subject, because you've got me thinking. You, you really have. Um, what works, what works is what you're really asking me. Um, over the years, I have sort of shifted my perspective of trying to implement something like blended learning from trying to break it down into these little itty bitty steps and treatments and being very, very specific to what you folks are experiencing now, where I actually step back and I get you to look at the big picture of blended learning. I get you to take a look at all the factors because over the years, what I've learned is if you try to approach a complex solution to a complex problem with a simple solution, it doesn't work, right? So a complex problem of your classroom, a complex problem of the learning environment requires that you take a look at the students, the learning environment, the technology, many other dynamics. It's a multifaceted complex problem. And so you need to take into consideration at least three things, at minimum three things, thinking about learning, the approach to learning, and then the learning environment. Now, I say at minimum, there's many other factors that come into play. And so to answer your question more specifically, I've learned over the years that the more we can look at the situation of learning as a broader, more holistic perspective, we can step back and look at that bigger picture, the more effective we can become. And 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 actually let me ask you folks what what do you think because i've asked you folks to build real projects and do you, do you think it's working what are your thoughts on that for me it's it's been a little bit of a challenge to actually bring it to fruition um because sometimes i feel there's a slight pushback um but i think that it is something that is definitely doable uh, and that i'm going to slowly but surely chip away at it and see where um, I can start putting those things in my, you know, learning teaching environment. Well, so you've identified something that is so significant. That, oh, it's it. I'm working at it, but there's a pushback. Remember, in the first couple of courses, I said when people push back. <laughs> remember, I said when, not if. 
but that's significant because we we want we we use the language of the progressive educators like Dewey. We talk about individualized instruction and student voice and student ownership, all these wonderful things. But yet we still have a restrictive, fixed mindset, standardized testing environment. And so we 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 have the language of Dewey, but we've got the reality of Thorndike, right? So you know there's a there's a bit of a disconnect, and that disconnect I think is what you're facing. That's what you're bumping into, and that's why I think it's really important. Because uh, if you're fortunate enough to be in an environment where you have a bit of exploration, well, guess what? Your 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 colleagues aren't pushing back, but the students might push back because they're not prepared for this, right? I get the Dr. Ace, you're changing the rules. Just tell me what I need to do. Don't, don't don't make me figure this out. Just tell me what I need to do. And am I right? Does any anybody else experience that? You know, does some of your students push back? Has anybody else found that? I can agree. I definitely have a lot of students push back um, with the process and even me coming into the grad program, I, I felt a little like on edge about the whole process, uh, having complete control over what it was that I was giving out as far as like the information that you wanted. Um, it was hard. It was, it was definitely, well, I wouldn't say hard. I would say it was a challenge. It's definitely a challenge to adapt to. Would you also say it's somewhat scary or frightening, right? In a sense, yeah. Because why? Why is that? What What's the biggest thing? What What's the biggest thing that made you uncomfortable with that? Because I don't know exactly what it is that you want, and so it's like, what do I do with it? Like, do I? Do I just like follow the instructions like verbatim or do I kind of take my own like creative edge on it? And I don't know, some days I'm feeling creative and some days I'm feeling like my foot. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to um, to have, you know, complete control over there without having some type of direction other than, you know, the instructions that you give, of course. Well, I, I think you've identified something really important. You can't put your students in, in an environment where there is no direction, there is no guidance, okay? And so you mentioned that, you know, do I follow Dr. H's instructions? So in, in the course structure we have in the ADL program, we do have relatively explicit instructions, but yet you've got the freedom to do a lot. And so in our meetings, and, and we've had one-on-one, -on -one, many of us have had one-on-one, -on -one, I think all of us have had one-on-one -on -one meetings, and so I coach and guide. And so you have to find that balance between that freedom to explore and experiment. But at the same time, you need to have some boundaries and some guidelines because it's those boundaries and guidelines that force you to become even more creative because you have to work around constraints. And so, yeah, finding that balance is, it's tough. And I find, again, to answer the question in general, not a lot of students are prepared to take that ownership and take that responsibility and to think at that higher level. But once you start to go down that path, can anybody take your project away from you now? <laughs> it's yours, isn't it, right? You're, you're at the level in, in the ADL program where this is my project, <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> I'm gonna do it my way. And, and you'll probably even argue with some of your instructors in terms of what you wanna do. A am I right? I see a big grin on Desiree's face. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, at this this um, is just absolutely perfect for me and how I learn. Like I've always been a solitary learner, but 
um, having somebody give me um, that opportunity to, to, to have that autonomy to be creative and just go in my own direction. Sometimes I may need uh, some boundaries because I may go completely off in left field and I'm just going to go in my own pace. But, you know, I, I love being able to explore and be creative and learn from others too. But I, I've just really loved this opportunity. And I think it's, it's a great, and I think it's great for people to experience it. And, and I think people are afraid of it. They don't embrace it because they're not familiar with it. But I think once they do become familiar with it and they have that opportunity to explore the potential, I, I think it's just, it's endless, like what we could do with this, you know, not only for us as adults, but for, for our students as well. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So I, Gary, did I answer your question? I think I, I think I got there. Yeah. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> good, yes, you did. Good. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, I have to agree with Desiree and Diona and Gory, of course. I think like the ADO program is something that I needed to experience. Um, I, it's quite different. <laughs> you know, it was just completely different. They were kind of telling me what to do, what I needed to turn in. Um, and I think I just had to remind myself that Dr. H or, you know, Dr. Bedard or Dr. Grogan, that y'all weren't like the end audience. Um, and I think that's something that I had to keep reminding them myself because I was like, what is, you know, what am I supposed to turn in? You know, they're not telling me how to do it or what guidelines to follow. So I think reminding myself of who the audience was was really helpful. That's excellent. Um, and that's a tough adjustment, um, recognizing that you're creating something that is going to influence another group of people. And, and it forces you to, to really think of, well, how am I really going to do that? You know, it, it puts you in a difficult position. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that even though you're finding it difficult, it's still doable. And, and every once in a while, you might need some coaching and poking and prodding from, you know, Dr. Bedard or Grodin or maybe even from Dr. H. And so I'm, I'm glad that you recognize that you, you see us as coaches and guides and we can help you with that. Excellent. So after um, answering Gory's question, my question is, um, what have some of the pitfalls been that you've experienced yourself or that you've observed um, with the implementation process of blended learning? Well, um, the, the pitfalls are, are going to be somewhat related to the fact that um, there's a misunderstanding of what really needs to happen. And if you don't look at the big enough picture, that, that's one of the biggest challenges. But another challenge that comes up, and, and I'm, I, I actually was on a consulting call this morning, um, language. Okay, so when people think of something like blended learning or makerspace or e-portfolios, they have an idea of what that means. And over the years, I found that, you know, when I mentioned blended learning, oh, the flipped classroom, oh, that's just putting lectures online. Well, no, there's a little bit more. And so I think one of the challenges that I found over the years is that, um, and, and, and I know a lot of you have experienced that when somebody asks a question, I'll say, well, what do you mean by that? I, I ask for a definite definition of terms and, and I want to make sure that, and, and you've probably experienced this in feedback for me. If you were doing a blended learning project and say, and you use the term of flip classroom, I'll say, don't limit yourself to that. That that's that's one part of the blended learning opportunity. That's one part that is a good idea. Taking videos, ideas, content, putting it online so that students can look at it before class, and then when they come to class, they can go deeper. But that's not the whole experience. And so be very, very careful with language. 
getting clear on the definition terms, making sure that people really know what it is that you're talking about. Also, helping people to recognize that language can either present an opportunity or it can limit you in terms of what you're doing. So how you structure ideas can be uh, limiting. The other thing, I refer to myself as a delusional optimist. And over the years, I have learned that you have to convey a more positive perspective. Because if you, when you're dealing with your colleagues, if you introduce even a hint of criticism, <laughs> it shuts them down. It does. It, the, I'm not doing that. L listen, Harapnik, you, know, you're, you think you're the expert. Yeah, you know, like I have to be so careful. Right. And it, it's only taken me the last 25 years to figure that one out. <laughs> I, I, it, sometimes you have to be very, very careful and, and err on the side of the, the notion of you can catch more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. So language, definition, don't limit yourself, but also really let people know that I, I'm not saying you're doing something wrong. I, I think that what you're doing is great, it's wonderful, and you're helping the students, you care about them, but what if we could do this? What if we were to add this to what you're already doing, right? And so that's that I think is one of the big things, language and then ensuring that you are presenting that positive notion. So, you know, I have this thing called feed forward. Well, that came out of necessity in, in the sense of ensuring that I can actually positively encourage people to look at what the opportunities are. So does that, does that answer your question? Does that help? Yes, it does. And um, I think that's something that a lot of people should know. I feel like Desiree's kind of going into uh, blended learning and pushing it to the, like into um, like, you know, professional development. And I think that's really necessary because for instance, in, at my campus, whenever I, told them, you know, was kind of informing them about blended learning. They were, they just completely shut it down. You know, people that I was interviewing and they were like, we're a disciplinary campus. We can't do that here. But in my head, I'm like, okay, but I pull students and I work with them in groups and they work perfectly. You just have to know which students work better with who. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't, you know, they don't want to learn that or they don't want to change. It's a better way to say it. Well, here's something else to consider. When when they when you mentioned blended learning or you mentioned what you're planning to do, they have an idea in their head. And and it might be a something they tried and it didn't go over well many years ago. Oh yeah, I tried that. And in the back of their mind, yeah, yeah I know what you're talking about. Oh, you're you're young, you're naive. <laughs> you're gonna learn too that this isn't gonna work. They might not necessarily be saying that, but in their pushing back on that, what they're what they're actually telling you is that I tried that it didn't work and so I or, or they might not really fully understand. And so when I mention the language, what I try to do now when I work with people, I, I, I try to provide examples and talk about the fact that, you know, sometimes it, 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 if you can provide students with a really interesting contemporary bit of information and, and, and it might be somewhat 
controversial even and they look at it and they explore it and then when you come into class and they can discuss it you know maybe they watch this video ahead of time on tiktok everybody watches the same tiktok video and then and then you talk about that tiktok video in class and then you can use that as an object lesson for either a cultural issue or an ethics issue or something else you can talk about these examples and and they'll go yeah, yeah oh yeah yeah that, yeah that makes sense and say well you know that's just a that's a blended learning strategy where you have students do this and so you can you can use an example and then sort of coach them through the process and then th that way they're not getting hung up on the language that's another thing see we language and the way we term things and the way we call things can limit our conversation or it can expand it and sometimes just telling a story helps expand the language so yeah it's people it, it's challenging you know now, now, now you all understand why I have that Crucial Conversations uh, book in the course, right? Huh? Huh? I was just going to say that. <laughs> and Dr. H, I want to add, I love how you talk about uh, language. I never thought about it like that because when we're introducing this idea, because I honestly think a lot of times when we, we bring out this, oh, this is a you know, great opportunity. And I think a lot of people just interpret it as, oh my God, it's just another program. You know, and, and we already are overwhelmed, you know, death by a thousand initiatives. And so, you know, it's in the way that we approach it, the way that, you know, we use our language and being careful. And it's really, it's a way of, uh, of thinking, a way of doing, you know, when we're talking about rethinking our learning environments, like how is it going to benefit our students? How is it going to benefit us? You know, it's more than just implementing a program. Um, and so, yeah, I really like how you, you you mentioned that about the language of taking notes as you're, as you're speaking. So... <laughs> Cool. Well, listen. What you're what you're getting from me is years of pushback and failure, <laughs> and ways I sort of work through that. Right? Oh man, it, I. <laughs> yeah, it, it's years of uh, doing it wrong, and, and, and you figure out this. You know, I, I think I, I think I'm just cagey in terms of how I understand how language works. But no, no. To be fair. Um, I do have a bit of a background in philosophy, so definition of terms uh, is really important for me. And you said something, Desiree, that I think is really important. Everybody's busy, and and you don't want to just throw in a new initiative, a new a new project, a new program, just for the sake of having a new program. And so it's really important that when we're actually talking about these ideas, I, I, I mention this quite often, well, we do want to prepare our students for the test and to get the credential, but we also want to prepare them for life. But maybe we can do both together. And if we do both well, maybe if we do one really well, like prepare them for the test, that could free up more time to help prepare them for life. And so if you can also factor in the notion that if we're smart and we're efficient and we look at doing things well, we might be able to save a little bit of time if we do it really well. Or not necessarily not maybe maybe not save time but not add too much more time. Because everybody's busy and, and that's a reality. And death by a million initiatives yeah not a good one it's like death by you know powerpoint so i i hear you on that i even agree to dr h as well as desire on that and uh, i would also appreciate that if uh, uh, if we model our classroom with our thoughts and everything it would be definitely helpful for our other teachers who are down with the thoughts and who are not ready to go with the thoughts when we when they see our success growing up definitely i i believe that one day or the other they're going to follow it Especially, I, I agree. Yes, if you if you model these things, especially if you have one or two key students who go, hmm. Well, well, 
well, how come Dr. H can do that in his class? <laughs> right, they're going to be, okay, Harapnik, what are you doing? Come on, tell me, tell me. <laughs> why, why do your students like what you're doing there? And if you, you know, if you can encourage your colleagues to ask you questions about what's going on, that, that I think is more important than trying to convince them to join you. You know, your students can, can become your best advocates. And so, you know, like, for example, <clears throat> Uh, Dr. H, can you can you get everybody in the program to use uh, video feedback? <laughs> right, it, it drives all the other instructors nuts. Yeah, Dr. Rapnik doesn't have a life. He's able to do stuff like that because he's nuts. No, no, they don't say that, but that's probably what they're thinking, right? <laughs> but so I'm 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 even using those same tactics on my colleagues in the program and encouraging them. And I know Dr. Bedard has been using. She's completely switched over to video feedback. And I've got Dr. Grogan. She she's kind of dabbling in it. So, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm trying to influence people too. So the same challenges that you face, I face as an instructor in this program as well. So, but yeah, that's a wonderful point. Wonderful point. And the next question for Dr. Hedge is like, as far as uh, data collection, do you prefer a qualitative or a quantitative approach to collect data or a comparison method? Well, I, <clears throat> I'm a classical Kluger. <laughs> that's a that's an IT technical term meaning I, I combine things together. Um, most of my research over the years has been mixed methods. I did my doctoral research with a uh, quantitative approach, which really didn't work. When you're dealing with humans, with people, with 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 classes, with students, with the educational system, I think you have to combine a quantitative measurement with a qualitative component as well. And so most of the research I've done in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years has been mixed methods. So the things that you can actually measure in terms of maybe an attitude, a response, or the level of success, you can quantify those things. But also bringing in a focus group perspective, looking at attitude changes, I, I think it's important because, again, as I mentioned earlier on, we have a complex learning environment. Whenever you have humans involved in something <laughs> and you're dealing with something like learning, wow, the levels of complexity are off the charts. And I, I don't think you can reduce learning to a treatment and a single one or two factor treatment, which can be easily measured quantitatively, will give you good data, but it doesn't really tell you the whole picture. So I, I'm, a, I'm a mixed methods kind of guy. Unfortunately, a lot of work. It's much more work. And you have to actually take a look at reliability and validity issues, and you have to verify that, well, the, the, the questions I used in the focus group really were valid and raw. You know, there's, it's much more work, but guess what? It's a complex environment, so I think you have to go down that path, right? So I, 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 I combine both, almost always. D does that answer your question? Yes, Dr. Hedge, I go with you because that's what I always appreciate it. Like it has to be qualitative as well as, as well as quantitative. So I go with that. Great. What are and your thoughts? What, well, that's what I feel. We're not living in a linear world, so it, you cannot measure things just on a linear scale. Um, and, and, and like you just said, different things have to be measured in a different way. Um, scores can be measured quantitatively, but you know, there's certain things like even for our action research plan that we're doing, we have to really think. And when I started doing that, I'm like, 
do I want quantitative? Do I want, I don't want tests because I do not like tests. So how else <laughs> do I measure it? And then what kind of questions do I, you know, how do I frame my questions so I can actually get a good feel of their responses and a good feel of like a, like you just said, is it valid? You know, um, are my questions valid where it'll measure what I'm trying to measure. So like to really put my thought process down and see if that, you know, that's going to work, but yeah, I'm, I'm on the mixed method side as well. I mean, I don't think it's black or white. It has to be gray. And fortunately in, in our discipline in education, especially because of um, some more contemporary research being done, mixed methods is being much more widely accepted. There, there was a time like what, 25 years ago, I, well, when I did my doctoral research, I had to do quantitative because, well, it, it's only credible if it's quantitative, right? There, there, there's this issue of credibility. Um, and um, well, I, I, did, I did that quantitative perspective, but I also threw in some mixed methods uh, components, which made my whole doctoral defense a nightmare, but I got through. <laughs> so if I were to do it again, yeah, I'd still go down that path. I'd still mix it up. Um, but I, I think you folks are living in a time, well, think about it. You, you got to do a, um, your research project wasn't a traditional, you, you, you get to do action research. Think about that. Think about that. Like 10 years ago, I couldn't have used that methodology in this program because, well, it's, you, you have to do quantitative. It's, it's just, you know, we, we are a discipline looking for credibility and that's how we gain credibility is by doing quantitative research. Uh, no. <laughs> so, you know, you are, you folks get the benefit of many years of pioneers. And there's other people other than me who've been fighting, you know, the, the, the system for a lot of years. So enjoy that. I, I think action research makes a lot of sense because you actually come up with a plan, test it, explore, see what happens. Oh, make an adjustment, test it, explore, see what happens, make an adjustment. And guess what? That's a real world, right? So... Now you know why you're doing action research as opposed to traditional research. Yeah. Ah. I just feel like I just need to have um, crucial conversations at work. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been an awesome session and thank you guys. And, you know, for the sake of time, we are going to be closing out the session. Um, before we come to an end, though, I want to give a shout out to our group. Uh, our journey is almost over and a special thank you to Dr. H for participating in our session today. Thank you for your expertise as a practitioner, your guidance through uh, our academic journey in this ADL course. Um, but before we um, close out this discussion, I just want to sum up the details of the session we touched in so many different areas and possibilities around blended learning, beginning with uh, rethinking professional development and how incorporating blended learning components will help promote change around our innovation plans as we work to create as Dr. H says, significant learning environments. Um, we talked about early education um, uh, in an elementary setting, specifically for pre-K and kindergarten, how a combination of blended learning and a Montessori method will benefit um, 
a classroom environment. And for secondary education, we talked about a few different areas, how project-based learning can enhance learning, how blended learning can help integrate um, uh, project-based learning in a classroom, and how uh, a blended learning environment, environment in general can benefit not only a traditional classroom setting, but also a disciplinary setting um, and alternative placement. And lastly, we concluded with our expert and professor, Dr. Dwayne Harpnick. Uh, on, uh, we talked about his professional experience around the implementation of blended learning, his ideas, and um, how we can implement our plans and, and really how we approach data collection around that once, if and when we do. I'm going to say when we do. I'm not going to say if we do. I'm going to say when we do. <laughs> uh, so uh, a great deal of content we covered here. And um, just anybody have any closing thoughts before we close this session? Feel free to do so. If not, uh, we conclude this session. I'm just going to say, you know what? Good luck to all of us for trying to implement and just, you know, keep standing, keep pushing little by little. We'll budge that rock finally one day. <laughs> yes. I, I, I want to encourage you all. Um, I, I've had the honor and privilege of watching your learning journeys. And, and um, right now, my, my heart is warm. You're, you're using language that I introduced you to in really significant ways. And, and you're looking at the bigger, broader picture. And you're also recognizing that, you know what? Our, our learning environments are actually quite good. And if we can make a little bit of a difference and push a little bit more, you know, it, it, it will work. And, and yeah, we're going to get pushback. But you know what? If we, if we have those crucial conversations, if we keep on, you know, thinking about what's best for our learners and, and, and want to improve their world, you know what? It, it, it'll work. And I hear that. So I'm excited for you folks. I thank you. Thank you. You made my afternoon. I, I, I had a lot of interesting meetings, but this has been a blast. Thank you so much. And I'm excited. How, like, did you have one more course after this or two more courses? Two more. Yeah. Two more. Two more. Oh, yeah. it's exciting. Oh, almost there. Almost there. Almost there. there. Yeah, almost there. <laughs> oh. Thank you so much for inviting me into your conversation. Thanks. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Hedge. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Stop the recording.